Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus." Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship so we can uh, uh, study the word. Scripture says that when we sin, we break fellowship with God, and the spiritual growth-producing ministry of God the Holy Spirit is shut down. When we confess our sins, then the uh, Holy Spirit's growth-producing ministry uh, starts up again. It's recovered, and we can go forward in our spiritual life. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful that we can gather together this evening to have our thinking challenged by your word. Your word is absolute truth, and our thinking is so often based on relative, uh, based within a relative framework that too often we need to completely overhaul the way we think and how we think in order to be able to conform to reality as your word has revealed it. Now, Father, as we study these things tonight, we pray that we might be able to concentrate, think, put aside the cares and worries of day to day, life that we might think about things that are of a greater significance and will help us as we understand these things to make decisions within our our day-to-day world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're at in an introduction to 1 Kings chapter 12. 1 Kings 12 introduces this new king, the son of Solomon by the name of Rehoboam. And there is a fascinating situation that takes place immediately as he is faced with a challenge to his leadership by the leaders of the ten tribes in the north. And this takes the form of at least a challenge to the taxation policies of his father Solomon. Last week, I began to look at this in terms of an introduction. I thought maybe I could get through it in a week. I should have known better. Uh, The more I think about it, the more I add, so it may take more than even two weeks to get into this introduction. But I think it's important, especially in this uh, political year, for us to think a little bit about what the Bible says about the role of government, good government and uh, bad government. And there are several key chapters in the Bible that address various aspects related to, to politics. And last time I went through some of the early ones in the uh, Old Testament, the New Testament, we can think of Romans chapter 13, which talks about the um, 
talks about the authority of the government, that God raises up governments, and God is the one who uh, brings down governments, and that God is the one who gives them the power of the sword. And that power of the sword has to do with the, it really goes back to and is an expansion of the Noahic Covenant principle related to the institution of government, especially in regards to the execution of criminals, especially murderers, because this is such a serious, serious decision to take the life of someone, to judge them honestly, to judge them objectively, and to reach a verdict which will entail their execution, that this becomes a foundation for thinking about the role of government and justice, and that sort of sets the stage. So, you, but you're going to have a different view of that, and as we know from watching the news, watching what happens uh, outside of uh, prisons, such as up at Huntsville, whenever they're going to execute somebody, and you always have all the protesters there on each side of the issue, that very few people come to these questions from a biblical framework. Not even a lot of Christians uh, come from a biblical framework. Or they think they do. They're in favor of capital punishment, and they understand that much. But so often when some news reporter sticks a uh, microphone in front of their face, they don't do a very good job of articulating why they believe it. And so they don't exactly represent uh, the biblical view in the most objective way. But the Bible does give us these key chapters, these key insights into government and problems with government, also strengths of government, and so it's important to think our way through this. And last time, we got through about the first, uh, I think I made it through maybe eight or nine points by way of introduction. I'm just going to whiz through them initially so we have that for a an opening framework. Uh, first of all, we have, the, we have a common statement today. We're, we're really running into challenges in our contemporary political environment ever since the early 60s with just exactly how do we, do we express the role of religious belief. We'll just use that term because that incorporates everybody in government, and there are those who want to think that say things along the line that religion has no place in politics, and I addressed that last time, uh, that religion should be kept out of politics. Can you really keep religion out of politics? If the Bible truly tells us how things are, then as a Christian, can you make decisions in the political realm, either as a voter or as a legislator or leader, that doesn't take into account what God says in his word. And last time I primarily addressed this from the viewpoint of of the voter, the individual citizen, that as a citizen we can't not take this into account. We have to take this into account. Otherwise we're basically saying that Christianity just deals with some very subjective, isolated area, compartmentalized area in our life that only deals with God, salvation, and the spiritual life. But the implicit idea there is that if 
Christianity in the Bible doesn't teach us how we are to think and act in relation to government, governing the basic foundational principles of political science, social organization, then what we're basically saying is that the uh, the creator of mankind, the creator of the universe, doesn't have anything to say about the organization, the society, the relationships of man, which is just flies in the face of much of Scripture. But we have to think about it also from the viewpoint of the role of government. Is it the role of government to implement a religious system? Is it the role of government to support a religious system? Where do you draw the line? Because when anyone is governing, if we understand things thinking correctly, anybody governing is going to govern from some worldview. And that worldview is either going to be one that is informed by the Bible or is going to be informed by something other than the Bible. In other words, it's either going to be divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. You don't have any other options. Human viewpoint may have 25 different schools of thought within it, but it's either divine viewpoint or human viewpoint. So just how do you work your way through some of these uh, naughty little problems? So last time I started off with the first principle that any religious system, if it has any depth or complexity to it, is going to address the basic issues of life, whether it's Hinduism, whether it's uh, uh, Islam, whether it's Mormonism, whether it's Christianity or any form of Christianity. If it has any depth or complexity to it, it's going to address all the basic issues of life. Philosophical systems address the basic issues of life. Often try to, philosophies try to answer the same basic questions that we go to the Bible for. Is there an ultimate reality? Is there an eternal reality? Where did uh, man come from? Do we have objective knowledge? Uh, what is right and what is wrong? That relates to ethics. Uh, the whole issue of is there an ultimate being, that relates to metaphysics. With uh, The whole question of, of knowledge relates to epistemology. Uh, the whole area of beauty has to do with the uh, philosophical branch of aesthetics. And, and so there's a parallel between uh, philosophy and religion. And it was used to be said in a previous century when there was a close affinity between philosophical thinking and the Bible, that philosophy was the handmaiden of theology because philosophy taught you the principles of logic and reason and how to think and to help one think more clearly, precisely about the things that were uh, revealed in God's Word. Second point I noted that from, from that, that is from this ultimate system that addresses the fundamental issues of life, there will also flow some explanation of origins. How did the universe come into being? How did the earth come into being? How did mankind come into existence? How did marriage come into existence? How are people to relate to one another? What is the basic foundation of society? That led to the third point, how we think about origins then impacts how we think about human society and its institutions. Are, they in, are there institutions which should apply an objective authority that builds this, these institutions into the warp and woof of, of, of creation, of man's makeup, man's nature, or uh, are they merely conveniences, are they merely conventions that man adopts on a purely pragmatic basis? 
Uh, fourth thing, then, is that we believe that the Judeo-Christian scriptures provide a specific view of human society. We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God in order to reflect God in everything that he does. We believe that man created man and woman in his image and that they are equally in his image, and that has implications for understanding uh, the roles of people within society. We also believe, or have been the traditional belief in Christianity, that there are different roles for men and women, and this relates to the fact that God had different purposes for males and females, and therefore there are uh, different roles for them, and this impacts how you view society. It affects how you view marriage and how you view the family. And then under the fifth point, I noted the that we have identified five divine institutions. I'm toying with the sixth, as I've mentioned before, uh, in terms of re- something revelatory related to Israel. But for now, we'll just stick with the classic five. Uh, you have the three pre-sin, uh, pre-fall institutions, individual responsibility, where each individual is responsible to God and will be held accountable to God for the decisions that he makes. Within marriage, there are two individuals who are responsible to God for the decisions they make, plus there is a hierarchy of authority where the man is the one who is held accountable by God for the spiritual welfare of the home, and he is the designated leader of the home, not because he has any uh, superiority to the woman, it's just that's the way God designed it. Within the family, the parents are the designated authority and the children are under the authority of the parents until they reach adulthood. And all of this was, it was instituted to give order and stability to society before there was sin. So how much more do we need to have these things recognized and implemented now that we live in a world that has fallen apart because of sin. In the post-flood environment, God delegated governing or judicial authority to man, and then two chapters later, because of man's perversion of that governing and judicial authority, uh, God established national uh, identity and distinctions as additional controls to sin. That's part of the role of these authorities is to protect us from ourselves to a certain degree in terms of criminality within the nation and in terms of uh, enemies, foreign powers that seek to dominate and control us to protect us from external enemies. Acts 17.26 was a passage I emphasized indicating that God determined the boundaries, the habitations, the times of the nations. This isn't just an Old Testament doctrine, in case you run into people who think of it that way. So the Tower of Babel was a real picture of rebellion in the Old Testament as man sought to solve his problem against God. Now, I said several things about the Tower of Babel last time. I want to expand on it just a little bit uh, this time. As we think about this, that saying some things that I did not say last time, and that is that as part of the perversion, governments established judicial authorities delegated Genesis 9. Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel, Nimrod 
seeks to build his own kingdom. That's the first use of the word kingdom in the Bible. And it is a perversion of what, uh, of what God established, what God instituted in Genesis chapter 9. Now, the interesting thing is that there is, that religion is in, integrally connected to the political kingdom aspect of Nimrod's uh, Nimrod's power base. He sets this whole thing up within a religious system, so he perverts religion and and co-ops religion in order to support his own agenda. So we have the distortion of religion for the use of political ends, and that is the beginning of much evil that that has occurred in history. Now, I said that the fifth point had to do with the five divine institutions. The sixth point was the that we noted that the idea of national distinctions and distinct national boundaries is set by God. That's uh, Acts 17.24 was the seventh point. Just the verse was the support of the sixth point. The eighth point was, eighth and ninth point bring us to two conclusions. Therefore, it's only reasonable, I'm excuse me, the eighth point is, therefore, it's only reasonable for us to believe that the God who created all things, created man to be male and female, designed the entire social concept that which includes marriage, family, and government, and that he would also address in Scripture principles related to each of these. So that what we, what we see in the first set of divine institutions are institutions that are established before the fall, before sin, the post-flood institutions of judicial authority and national distinctions are designed... In, a, in an evil environment, now this is crucial. The purpose of those two things is to protect the first three. The purpose of judicial authority and the purpose of national distinctions is to protect the first three divine institutions. Because without a protection on the first three divine institutions, which is individual responsibility, marriage and family, then the entire social structure will erode and collapse internally. That is why this whole issue related to uh, gay marriage, homosexual marriage, sodomite marriage, however you want to describe it, this, this allowance of same-sex marriage coming out of the courts in California is such a crucial uh, thing to understand. Is because now... According to what I've been told, now what appears on the licenses, the marriage licenses in California, is not husband and wife, but first person, second person. And if you're a pastor and you are a Christian and you you scratch that out and put in husband and wife, then the marriage license application will be denied. And so to, for, and which is a direct assault on Christian beliefs. You cannot get married in the state of California and uphold your religious belief that marriage is between one man and one woman. And that is, see, that's already beginning to change how pastors can perform 
church responsibilities to God and ministry. And this is only the beginning. This has the potential to completely uh, destroy ministry because now the government is going to st- is beginning to step in and say what is legitimate and not what what is acceptable and what is legitimate within the framework of of uh, a church ministry. So God has a right to address the society that He established. And the ninth point, which was the second conclusion was simply stating that if we believe that as Christians that God's the creator and that God created all things, and this is our view of reality, that God and that God has addressed all of these social issues, principles for marriage that are for believer and unbeliever, for family, principles of family for believer and unbeliever, that we uh, should also believe that he addresses principles related to government as well. That if you're going to develop a view of governing a view of government, a view of leadership, then your starting point as a Christian is going to be the Word of God and not political science 101 down at the local university or civics class in high school. Now, we pretty much got that far last week. I got into the little bit of the introduction of the next part where we began to deal with the key passages in Scripture. And the first key passage that I dealt with was the passage related to Genesis chapter 9 and the Noahic Covenant, the establishment of judicial authority. And that was quickly followed by the first subversion of judicial authority and government by the tyrannical kingdom established by Nimrod for the purpose of challenging God. So this is where we see for the first time in history the development of the kingdom of man. And throughout history there is going to be this this challenge, these two threads that run counter to one another, the kingdom of man as Satan through man seeks to establish his own domain and kingdom on the earth versus God who is seeking to uh, move into human history and to establish his own king who is the promised Messiah from the Old, Old Testament who will then finally establish his kingdom on the earth and rule man as uh, only he can rule man, as only man should be ruled. And so there is the beginning of this conflict that runs as a thread all the way through the Bible from Genesis 11 until you have the destruction of the Antichrist in Revelation chapter 19. And in the tribulation period, which we've been studying on Sunday mornings, you have Satan get as close as he can get to establishing the universal kingdom of man on earth. And he just about gets there, and it just, everything falls apart. Jesus Christ comes back and establishes the true divine king. So this conflict between God and Satan is played out within the realm of human politics and human kingdoms. And we can't look at human history and divorce it from that. So several things, a couple of things we ought to note here. First of all, government is that we look at from Genesis 9 in conjunction with Romans 13 in the New Testament. Government is related to the protection of people in terms of protecting them from criminality and protecting them from external enemies. 
this idea of the sword comes out of the idea of the sword, which is developed in Romans chapter 13, which and the sword is also always a metaphor for power over death, power to determine life or death. That is, in terms of either execution of criminals or in terms of warfare. So just briefly, I want to look at Romans chapter 13. I don't want to do a point-by-point exegesis here. But the key passage is found beginning in uh, verse 1 down through Verse 7, let every, bo- every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. That is an incredible statement. There, God is the one who overrules history. He is the one who raises up kings. He is the one who removes kings. There is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, I'm not going to get into a lot of questions about is there ever a place to subvert the authority because they are doing something wrong. I'm not going to get into that. The point here, the reason authority is such an issue all through Scripture is because that was the issue, core issue in the angelic conflict. Satan subverted the authority of God. And this is why the Scriptures make it such an important thing to obey authority because once a person sets up in his mind the me- mental framework that I'm the one who really judges whether any authority is valid or not, then it's easy to take that same mentality to God and say, well, I'm going to judge whether or not God has the right to tell me to do this or that. So authority orientation is foundational in the angelic conflict and for the believer. Verse 2 says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, And those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to do good works, but to evil. Do you want to be... And he writes this when Nero is in power in Rome. So he's not writing this within an ideal government situation. And verse 4, he says, For he, uh, he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he that is the... uh Ruler, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. That's that metaphor. It's power of life over death. Now, that's all I wanted to get out of that passage. It's all I want to deal with right now. There's a lot of other questions that we could address, and I don't want to address them at this point. The, the point is, the, 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 this shows the limitation of government. That's my point. The limit, the, the, there are limits within Scripture for government, God institutes government, and then he says there are limits for government. It is not the role of government to take care of the spiritual needs of people. That's just one aspect because that gets, that causes a, a violation of the line of demarcation between uh, religion and politics, if you were to put it in modern day terminology. So, as I pointed out last time, when we ask the question, should religion be divorced from politics or politics be divorced from religion, I focus first on the perspective of the individual. It, it, you can't, your, your, your view of authority, 
must come out of Scripture. Your view of government must come out of Scripture. Your view of the extent or limits of government must also come out of Scripture because your your understanding of government is going to be directly related to your understanding of man's basic nature, is man basically good or basically evil. And uh, I recommend heartily a, a book by Thomas Sowell called Conflict of Vision, where he goes historically shows that what you have is uh, in, in history it's a difference between what we now what we call in America conservatives and liberals. What makes a difference is the liberals, as they've become to be defined in the 20th century in American thought, is really a liberation from authority, and that can be traced back to an Enlightenment idea of liberation from the church. But they were taking it to a further extreme that man, you know, coming out of the Enlightenment, that man was the measure of everything and man had the ability to solve all of his problems and on the basis of reason alone, without any help from God or the Bible or religion, man could uh, solve anything because man is basically good. That's the underlying assumption. Whereas coming from a biblical viewpoint, you have a perspective that man is basically evil. And man is basically rebellious, he's self-centered, he's arrogant. And therefore, government needs to have certain controls on man to protect man from himself in terms of criminality and in terms of uh, external enemies and the military. So these two elements, which relate to uh, the judicial functions of the police, the justice system, and the military are both embedded within this concept of the sword. And so from one perspective, religion can't be divorced from politics because it's the revelation of God's word that helps us understand who man is, what society is, what absolutes are, and how they should come together. On the other hand, it's not the role of politics or political leaders to address or religious questions or impose religion upon a society. But also, we have to factor in the element that from the viewpoint of government itself, it can't be totally devoid of religion. You can't come into to a judicial body or to a legislature and say, okay, I'm going to set aside my Christian convictions or my Islamic convictions or my Jewish convictions or my secular atheist convictions. In fact, the Supreme Court, in a ruling in 1973, stipulated that secular humanism fit all of the standards for a religious system. So every every arena of thought ultimately becomes a religion. It's just as much a religious statement to say there is no God as to say there is a God. It's just as much a religious statement to say I won't let the Bible affect my views of ethics as to say I will let the Bible affect my views of ethics. So at one level, the question is, well, whose, whose religion are you going to let influence the leaders? But at the other level, that is not a specific religious system. is not going to be imposed on or dictated to the uh, people at large. 
And we see with the Tower of Babel from the very beginning, it has these religious overtones. And I pointed out the, you see the same thing in the modern uh, European Union, which is just a sec, just promotes a secular atheistic religion. And so we have one of my favorite pictures, just the, the modern version, just an outgrowth of the uh, ancient problem. Now, let's look ahead to the next key passage, which I addressed last time, which is Deuteronomy chapter 17. We went through this last time. And in this passage, God describes the limits of kingship. He describes the limits of kingship, that the king is under the authority of the law. This is one of the most important aspects of Deuteronomy chapter 17, is the king is supposed to hand write out for himself his own copy of the Mosaic law, and he is to copy it and read it all the days of his life to observe, this is in verse uh, 19, So that he can carefully, the last part of verse 19, carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, recognizing the inherent problem of power, that power corrupts, provides that environment of corruption. So the uh, king is to read the law so that he can learn to fear the Lord. Now, if we look at parallel passages in Scripture, such as Proverbs 1-7, we understand that the fear of the Lord, from a biblical viewpoint, is the beginning of knowledge. Learning to read and appreciate Darwin is not the beginning of knowledge. Okay? Professing to be wise, they became fools. So Christians and those who hold the Bible dearly are ridiculed by a secular educated culture. Not that it's wrong to be, I'm not limiting or denigrating education, but it is an education that has a religious agenda to it, which is to destroy the underpinnings of Christianity. I hear stories all the time from uh, people who go to school. I experienced the same thing when I was in college. You just have to learn how to deal with it, uh, that you have professors who have an agenda to identify anybody who even comes close to having evangelical convictions uh, within the first two class periods and then to pick them out and attack them and embarrass them and to ridicule their faith so that they, they uh, either quit or they give up their Christianity by the middle of the semester. And, you know, you have to prepare kids to know the truth so that when they go off and they're in classes like that, they know how to handle it. But um Bible talks about the fact that the beginning of real knowledge, uh, it begins with a respect for the Lord. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It is a respect for God's authority and orientation to God's authority, and that's the beginning of knowledge. Now, a couple of comments I want to add to what I looked, I said last time. As I've emphasized already, the king here is under the law. This is a radical concept, and no other, no other civilization in the ancient world had the king under the law. And in the kingdom of man, this is always the pressure from human empires is for the king to be the source of law. 
You had this in ancient Egypt. You had it in the Mesopotamian empires because the king in Egypt was the incarnation of God. The king in the Mesopotamian empires is a representative of God. Later on, the Roman Empire, the Caesars declared themselves uh, to be God, the divine Caesar. Later on, you have various forms that take place in the the, uh, Enlightenment era and post-Enlightenment era and modern era where you have the nation is set up as the ultimate authority, the, the uh, God. You have uh, various, um, uh, various systems in between. So if the Bible teaches that the king is under the law, then the law must be broader than, larger than creation. It can only come from the creator. But if... The law ultimately derives from the creation, then law is mutable and relative. But if the, the law comes from the creator, then law is absolute. So what do you have to do? If you don't like, if you don't like God, you have to get rid of creationism. And once you get rid of creationism, then the creator who uh, creates man, as it's stated even in the Declaration of Independence, gets removed, and so now these just become conventions rather than uh, absolutes. And this was uh, really co- also comes out of the Enlightenment. Enlightenment had various aspects to it. Some were moderate, some were extreme. But the, in, at the core of its thinking about knowledge, the Enlightenment period in the 1600s, 1600s, 1700s, tried to come to truth apart from any kind of revelation. And a lot of Enlightenment thinking influenced the founding of this nation, and that element is our weakness because it provides an inadequate basis for government because it ultimately looks to elements within the creation as its source of authority. And once you put your ultimate source of authority within creation, that government derives from the consent of the governed. Is that what the Bible says? That's not what the Bible says. That's putting government with its origin from within society. So you see these tensions that we have within our, uh, within our founding documents. And you know what? We're always going to have those tensions living in a fallen world. That's part of what God is showing as we see in Israel's history, is that human authorities and human kings are always going to fail. Human politics are not the solution because the only solution is going to be God's solution and God's king. So, uh, the pro- and then when you get in also into the Enlightenment, was that they, um, they try to solve a problem by avoiding the picking of a religious position, but even their position had inherent religious ideas. So there's just these internal contradictions. Now, the reason it worked in the late 1700s in America and in a couple of other places was why? Because those societies were very homogenous. You go to Eng- you go to Britain, you go to uh, uh, North America, you go to uh, Holland, they were extremely homogenous societies, and even though you had different views on different things, 
95% of the people operated within a biblically, biblical theistic worldview. One of the reasons that we have the civil unrest that we do today and the lack of civility that we do today and the extreme anger that we have today in political discussions is because we live in an extremely heterogeneous society. It's so diverse today. You have people coming from a multiplicity of worldviews that profoundly contradict each other. And so this is going to lead to a lot of division and fragmentation within, within the culture. Now, historically, the United States was also heavily influenced by a writing called Lex Rex, written by Samuel Rutherford. Lex Rex was Latin. It was a short t- title, but it meant the law is king. Rex Lex was the typical operating principle of uh, human kingdoms. The king is law. But Samuel Rutherford wrote this to show that from a biblical viewpoint, the law is set in authority over the king. Samuel Rutherford was a Scottish Presbyterian theologian. He was one of the uh, divines, as they called them in that day, one of the theologians who was sent to participate in the writing of the Westminster Confession of Faith. He was part of the Westminster Assembly. And he wrote this as a meditation on, guess what chapter? Deuteronomy 17. That's where he understood the principle that, biblically speaking, the law is king, the king is not law, that man, the rule of man must come and must be governed by the rule of law. Then, at the end of last time, I jumped into the next passage, which is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Again, this is a, a tremendous passage for understanding uh, what God says about government. And we probably won't get out of 1 Samuel 8 at all tonight, but this is really a setup that's important to understand what's happening with Solomon and what happens with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Deuteronomy 17 says that the, and, uh, that the king's not to multiply wives for himself. He is not to increase his wealth at the expense of the people. He is to be under the authority of the law. We see that Solomon fails on all these counts. And what 1 Samuel 8 says is this is almost the inevitable trend of fallen men in governing positions is to take advantage of the governed. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we realize, just a little background, up to this point, Israel has been a pure theocracy. And a pure theocracy means they did not have an executive branch. They didn't have a king. They didn't have a dictator. They had God. God ruled over Israel. And he spoke to them through prophets such as Moses, through judges uh, such as, and he delivered them through judges such as Gideon, uh, Jephthah, uh, others in the book of Judges. He instructs them through prophets and through priests. This is Samuel is the last of the uh, pro, 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 uh, last of the of the judges, and he is one of the first of the prophets, and he is also a priest. So he is a judge, a prophet, and a priest, and in that he stands 
in a unique position in Israel's history. But in chapter 8, after a couple of chapters describing events of military calamity in Israel, the people come to Samuel because they don't like his two sons who have become ne'er-do-wells and uh, they don't follow in the path of Samuel. They don't walk in his ways or the ways of God. They're dishonest. They're perverted. And the people want to have a king. And in verse 5, they express it in this manner. Now, make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And so part of their problem is they want to have a king like all of the other nations. Well, all the other nations are modeling kingship according to this pattern that started at Babel with the the kingdom of man, a kingship that is somehow uh, that is wraps up religion and autocracy. It's it's tyrannical. It's at the expense of the people, and the ki- these kingdoms are attempting to do for the people what God says that only He can do. They're pr- trying to bring in health and happiness and prosperity without being dependent upon being dependent upon God. And so they request a king and this displeases Samuel verse six because they said this, so he prays to the Lord, and the Lord gives him a direct answer, which is recorded beginning in verse seven. And the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, they have rejected me. God gives us the insight there that Samuel took this personally. But they have rejected me that I should not reign over them according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. What's God reminding Solomon, I mean, reminding uh, uh, Samuel of there? He's reminding him that God... The people were to exercise faith restoration towards God as their king, that God would protect them from their enemies. God protected them from the most uh, horrendous, tyrannical government possible under the pharaohs when they were in Egypt. God also protected them from various military incursions, even though God let them be defeated for disciplinary reasons. God protected them from the incursions of the Midianites and the Philistines and the Amalekites and the others that came in during the period of the judges. In the previous two chapters, God has protected them miraculously from the Philistines and given them a victory finally over the Philistines after the uh, terrible defeat at the Battle of Aphek when the, when the Ark of the Covenant was captured. But God allowed that to happen so he could show Israelites that it wasn't up to them and their military might and strategy to protect themselves. God would do it. And this is the whole episode where the uh, statue of Dagon falls down before the Ark a couple of times, and eventually the Philistines are so disrupted because of their... Uh, tumors or hemorrhoids or however you understand the passage, that they have to send the ark back to Israel because they can't handle this God of the Israelites anymore. So God has demonstrated that he can protect Israel. They just have to trust in him, but they've rejected that. Now, as we get into this, we have to understand a little bit about the background. First of all, kingship, as I pointed out already, in the Old Testament is related to God who is the initial king of Israel, 
and the kingship in Israel is going to culminate in the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom. That brackets your understanding of kingship within Israel. And that what God is going to show through human kings is going to be important for understanding the need that only a divine king, the divine human king, can provide in the Lord Jesus Christ. In contrast to the kingship model that's set forth in Deuteronomy and in 1 Samuel, the kingdom of man is constantly seeking to assert itself as the ultimate solution to man's problems. And we, as I pointed out already, the kingdom of man is simply a human manifestation of the broader challenge to God's authority that comes out of the angelic conflict. Satan is the one who is using the kingdom of man to establish his power base within human history in order to assert his control over the planet. In contrast to that, we see that God is ultimately going to defeat Satan during the tribulation when he establishes his king, Jesus Christ, the king of kings and lord of lords, over the kingdoms of man in the millennial kingdom. Now, when we look at the success of Israel's kings, uh, their successes will typify or picture key attributes of Jesus Christ, key attributes in David, his humility. Uh, key attributes in Solomon, his wisdom, key attributes in some of the other kings. These, the positive things, picture attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the virtues that a king must have to rule. But every one of these human kings has a flaw and a failing. And that's what God is also demonstrating is that human beings ultimately can't provide the solution. There are a few bright lights here and there. But for the most part, as we go through these kings from 1 Kings chapter 12 to the end of 2 Kings, we're going to see mostly leaders who are failures with very few that have any, any real uh, virtue or integrity. And that points to the basic character flaw that we all have, which is arrogance. Now, we come to the first king that God's going to install in Israel as a result of this request, and that's Saul. Now, some people might think, well, he made a mistake with Saul. Saul's from the tribe of Benjamin. What about the prophecy back in Genesis 49 that the scepter will not depart from the tribe of Judah? Did God make a mistake with Saul? Now, God is, God, God's a multitasker, and God is going to give the people exactly what they want so that they will learn to, and develop the capacity to appreciate what they need. And it is in Saul's failure that the people learn what they should have and what God gives them in David so that they can appreciate David. First, they have to go through Saul so that they will appreciate David when God gives them David. So God installs Saul for a reason, and it's to prepare them for his choice. And in this section here, God is going to give them fair warning. And in that warning, which they reject, they take on their own condemnation. And the irony of this is that God gives them everything they need, but they constantly just reject it, and it just comes back uh, back to haunt them. 
In this chapter, God points out the danger of human kings and that that danger resides in their desire for autonomous power, which is used by them to enhance their own standing, their own wealth, their own power base, and to expand their own kingdom for their own agenda. And that the one of the prime moving forces in human kingdoms is power and a desire to establish uh, man to solve his own problems apart from God. Now, as we've seen in Deuteronomy, the divine ideal for human government is limited government. That's what you have in, in, first, in uh, Deuteronomy 17. The king is under the law. The king has limits placed upon him. He is not to go out like all these other kings in these other nations and to accumulate power to himself. It is a limited government. And it is a government that when you read through the Mosaic Law, it is a government that is designed to preserve property and to preserve property ownership. That's the whole idea that you read again and again as you go through the law on inheritance. The government is to preserve property and to preserve uh, property ownership, which is the foundation for liberty. Basic rule of thumb, if you see a somebody running for office and they want to take away more of anybody's money, they are anti-liberty. Because the more money that you work for, you get to keep, the more liberty you have and the more options you have in life. If you get, if you work hard and you make $5,000 a month or $10,000 a month, you have a lot of options. But if you make $20,000 a month and the government takes $15,000 a month, then three quarters of the time you're a slave to the government. And that's the problem with this Ta- increase the taxes on the wealthy 2% because the amount of money that they, the, the percentage that they give to the government, that percentage of their time, they, ha- they are virtual slaves to the government. And I find it ironic that we have a candidate running for presidency who wishes to further enslave any members of his country. And that's all it is. When, you, when we have to work four to five months out of the year, and in some cases six or seven months out of the year, just to pay your tax bill, those four to five to six to seven months, you are a slave to the, gov- to the federal government. And that is just wrong. That is a violation of the principles of liberty. Now, when you look at the principles laid out in the Old Testament, the king was to preserve freedom and property because property is directly related to liberty. But you also see in Deuteronomy 17 and in subsequent chapters that the king does not function in the same realm and the same role as the prophet and the priest. The king is under the authority of the prophet and the priest. It is Samuel the prophet that anoints Saul as king. It is Samuel the prophet who anoints David as king. The king does not get over into the religious sphere. There was a complete separation between the religious responsibilities of the priest and the prophet and the leadership and ruling responsibilities of the king 
in Israel. The king was not to function in the realm, in the spiritual realm of the Mosaic law. He was completely separate. And that has tremendous implications. Whenever they violated that, God brought judgment on the people. But in the kingdom of man, what we see from the Tower of Babel on is that the kingdom of man trends towards combining the role of king and prophet and perverts government into a religious function that robs people of property and liberty. So that when the state becomes a purveyor of religion, it destroys freedom and liberty, tyranny always follows, and in its wake comes much evil. And we've seen many, many things like this all down through history from the ancient world with Egypt and Mesopotamian empires to Rome and the divine Caesar into uh, more modern times, the Holy Roman Empire. Uh, the Catholic Church is a merger of attempt to merge those two fields. And then in the 20th century, you had the rise of uh, Nazi Germany, which had a strong religious overtone to it. The whole Soviet empire, even though it was uh, atheistic, it still had a messianic role to play. We're going to bring in a per- utopian uh, workers' paradise. And then we have the, at the end, by the end of the 20th century, you have the rise of Islamic theocracy and the desire for Islam to establish their uh, eschatological kingdom on the earth. So the problem that we see is that when government steps out of its divinely appointed role to protect the people, their property, and their assets, it will use their property and assets to further its own prestige and power. And that's what God warns the Jews about in this chapter. He gives them, God addresses them, verse 11, he said, This will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots. And uh, he will appoint captains on in verse 12, and then he will take your daughters in verse 13. And, and what's happening is all of these will become uh, slaves or they will become minions of the empire. He will increase taxation, which was this taking a tenth of the grain. That's They're already paying 30% in three tithes in the Mosaic Law. This is another tithe. So 40% of everybody's everything goes to the government. That is egregious. Taxation, and this will—they uh, are—they're—they're they're taxing both the uh, production and the means of production, as what is described here in verses uh, uh, 15, 16, and 17. He takes the sheep, he takes the cattle, he takes everything, and then what's going to happen? What's the result of this? Well, the people are going to cry out. They are going to complain, God, we need a different king. We need a different government. And verse 18, you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. Divine institution number one, you exercise personal volition and you got just exactly what you asked for. So you will cry out in the day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and God will answer your prayer and give you a godly king. Is that what it says? No, that's not what it says. God's not going to listen to your prayer. You're going to get the leader you deserve because of the decisions you made in relation to God. 
And one of the things that often scares me when I look at the political scenario is that God will give us the president that we deserve because this nation has rejected the biblical foundation on which it was founded. And because we have reached a point in our uh, multicultural, multi-religious society that we no longer have enough of a core group of people who understand the the Christian and the historical heritage of this nation, that they want to blend all of these pagan ideas into this, you know, Heinz 57. I guess I could have used that back with Carrie ran four years ago, but still works. Heinz 57 variety uh, mix of culture, and it will collapse internally because we're going to get the leader we deserve. And God's not going to step in and just miraculously uh, pull uh, our feet out of the fire because as a nation, we have volitionally chosen to put them there. And it will truly be the grace of God if we don't get the leader that we deserve. So this is, uh, this is the warning that comes out of 1 Samuel chapter 8. Now, all of this focuses more on the dangers of central government and the dangers of large government and how centralized power ultimately destroys the basis for liberty and it will destroy property. It attacks property. We live in a world today where we, every, we all have property taxes. Whether you rent or not, you're paying property taxes. That's just rent to the government. You don't own your property. You're just renting it on the basis of taxation. That is anti-wealth, anti-first divine institution, and anti, uh, and it's against the uh, fifth divine institution of government. That's not the government's role. But that's part of the problem that we have uh, today. Now, all of this has addressed the problem of, of government. Now, what happens when we get into 1 Kings 12 is we look at another dimension, and that is the dimension of the individual person the quality, the leadership qualities of the person in the office. And Rehoboam is a mixed bag because he, we're going to contrast him to David and we'll contrast him to Solomon, especially when Solomon first took, uh, took the throne. So we'll start with 1 Kings 12 with our character analysis of Rehoboam next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to realize that your word clearly addresses many uh, issues that are uh, foundational to government, foundation to, foundational to political theory, foundational to the way we think about the uh, current uh, election, current events that are going on in the United States and give us a better uh, understanding of how to evaluate and examine and interpret the data based on your viewpoint. Father, we pray that you would challenge each of us with these things, that we'd be willing to think through the Scripture very clearly and how we think about uh, government and politics. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.